I'm Christy Bourne. And I'm Rainier Wild. Together, we're investigating the mysteries of love and relating. We get gritty and dig deep into why love is the tie that binds us together. And also drives us to our knees. This is our story. This is your story. This is Love Like Hell. So I pull up to the house and I say, we've got to talk. What's going through your head? I'm already feeling outside of whatever's going on. I see your mom there. I see our kids there. I think I've shown up late to the party. And I'm not exactly sure where it's headed and what it's about. So confusion, nerves, anxiety. It's unexpected. What's going through your head? I think uh, the whole way home from work, rapid fire processing this. It doesn't occur to me not to tell you what's going on. The question is, what am I going to tell you? I think I knew that I needed to tell you that I had been living a double life. I had been having an affair. I didn't know what was headed my direction. Of course it was out of the ordinary. Of course that moment standing outside the house is different. I'm home from work early. Um, I've invited you to go to the beach. There's this air hanging over it. There's something to be said. There's something to be talked about. The energy was different. You didn't really have a plan, it didn't seem, but we just needed to head out. But I got in the car. It was something that you wanted me to do, and I wanted to do it. I mean, I like to be with you. So we got in the car, but I can tell you my heart was racing. I knew something was coming down the line. Yeah, how did you get the words to come out of your mouth? I couldn't hardly squeeze air out of my cheeks. I don't even know if I was breathing. My heart was racing. I've been holding on to it for months now, but now I'm aware I'm holding it, and you're aware I'm holding it. The terror is spreading out over me as we cross first one bridge towards the beach and and then another bridge. And I think it was on that second or third bridge that I say, you know, there's been some rumors at work that I've had an affair and the environment's toxic and, and it's now tumbling out. Do you remember what you said? What the heck are we talking about? Did it, did it happen? Is it true? I wasn't ready to hear your answer, but I felt that there was more. Do you remember what you said? I took a a deep breath and held it for what seemed like an unbearably long amount of time before I sort of half cough out. Yeah, that, that happened. Nothing prepared me for that next moment. Everything up to that moment is sort of a fog, piecing together a timeline of what must have been going through my mind, what must be going through your mind. The events, I called my mother, the events, she came over, the events, we got in the car. Of course we had to cross these bridges. There's only one route out of town that we would have taken. It's detective work at that point, but but that moment, that's the only real memory I have. Your face melted like a mountain of snow. I know that I took my hands and covered my face and cried and wailed and probably couldn't breathe. I do know that I couldn't lift my head. I couldn't look you in the eyes. I didn't want to look you in the eyes. Because the person that's sitting in front of you 
is not the same person you married, is not the same person who you had children with, is not the same person who you got in the car with. The person sitting in front of you is a stranger. Someone who I don't know if I want to know, and I'm not sure if I want to be in the car with this person anymore. And then my life starts to not make sense either because what I felt or knew about myself was in the context of knowing this person. He was a stranger and I felt strange in my own life and my own body. I'm not sure how I gathered my wits about me. I'm not sure how or if I did stop crying, but I do know, like emotions melting, memories started melting too. And we kept driving. I'm pretty sure we're not sure collectively how we kept driving and how we kept the car on the road. I don't even know what you looked like. I don't know if you were crying. My world had changed too. As much as I can say I was someone different to you, in that moment, I was someone different. I was a stranger to myself. I'm having to look at the things that this stranger had done. I'm having to look at the effects that this person, who I didn't recognize, was impacting our world with. Suddenly, the world was melting away. Everything had fallen apart. All the plates were crashing to the ground. And that's where we were. That was the scene of the crime. The corpse of our relationship laid in front of us. We didn't recognize it. It was limp. It was a limp body of memories, of experiences. And now, what do we do with it? It's so interesting hearing the reflections that we're hearing, gathering these evidentiary kind of moments and and exploring them uh, together. We're not in that moment anymore, but we're using these firsthand kind of witnesses to really understand what goes on when you're in that moment. Um, and the thing I heard as I listened to, to this reflection is that we were absolutely done with the old, but couldn't begin to imagine the new. And so we're in this liminal space that feels like nothing. And maybe as we're driving, we're starting to experience this void um, kind of spread out before us. Yeah, there was something that we couldn't recognize in that moment, right? We couldn't recognize it. We can't put a finger on it. We didn't know how to talk about it. I think about your reflection and how do I bring this up? What do I share? What parts do I share? Do I share it all? Do I share a portion? I can only imagine having to sift through that and wondering what are the relevant parts. Um, you hadn't been in that position before. I hadn't been in that position before. So everything was brand new. Fear. Man, lots of fear. It, it's interesting hearing all of this and thinking about it because one of the things that really jumps out to me is how unique uh, the situation seemed then and, and seems now, but 
how absolutely not unique it is. Uh, one recent study that I read reported that anywhere between 50 to 60% of individuals reflecting back on their life and relationship reported infidelity, reported actually sleeping with someone who wasn't their partner. This is a, a, a silent killer so often. So we felt totally unique in that moment. But oh my goodness, this is something that haunts so many people. And I would say those numbers are even higher. Those are people that are reporting it, right? Those statistics are people that are claiming to be honest. What about the people that aren't? So I think it's more prevalent than even those numbers are because those are people willing to answer those questions and, and be somewhat honest. So yes, it felt very unique to both of us. Like, oh, I can't believe this is the life that I have. And I really wish there were more voices and people saying, this happens. You're okay. It's going to be okay, no matter if you stay with this person or don't, or you reimagine life after. But it felt like a void. It felt like we were the only ones who had ever been through this. And it left a lot of questions. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I think uh, the same report that I was reading described 95% of people, uh, and no surprises here, said that they wanted to remain faithful forever. So a lot of people are saying, hey, sign me up for fidelity. But of that same number, like half of the people, maybe more, aren't doing it. In other words, of all the people who intended to stay faithful, to be in this position, to give their whole lives to this, this person and never look back, you were just as likely to be unfaithful as faithful. It's like a coin toss right there, but you never think you're the one. And I've got to ask you, you know, that, that person who's riding in the car, who's just heard their partner say, I had an affair. What's she thinking? How is she making sense of this? Did, does she know that this was a likelihood? Does, does she think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, there was a 50% chance this was going to happen. It's so interesting because you never think it's going to happen. I, I would imagine most people would say, but this is the one where it's not going to happen. Even if that person had been unfaithful in the past, and even if you were unfaithful in the past, you would say, but this is the person. This one's different. And we'll treat this one different. And I won't be the same I was and he won't be the same he was and they won't be the same that they were. Um, I just don't think it's in your periphery because you're just thinking about turning over a new leaf, all the possibilities and all the dreams. So my answer was no. And it's kind of silly to think that that was out of my eyesight and intuition. You know, they, they say that anytime you're shocked in life, it's because you've fallen asleep, right? So your favorite politician suddenly is revealed to be a charlatan and you go, oh my God, how could that have happened? 
well, I, I don't know. Politicians don't really have a great track record. I mean, why did we think this guy was going to be any different? Uh, whatever that is, we get lulled into sleep quite easily. And the moment that we're describing here, the moment that, that we're hearing this ground zero, this, this scene of the crime, it's a waking up. It's going, everything I thought I was about, I'm not sure I was about anymore. What's that like? I mean, I'm trying to put myself uh, maybe in your shoes, hearing that news. Um, when you hear that, how do you reevaluate the life that you've lived? Well, I don't think in that moment you're reevaluating much. In that moment, you're trying to breathe. In that moment, you're trying to eke out words. In that moment, I don't know if there's a lot of rational thought going on. You're in a crisis. So I'm not sure about reevaluation. I think it's getting grounded in those moments. It's putting both feet on the ground. And maybe the grounding is asking some questions and getting some truth so I know what I'm stepping into. I think for me, that question that you asked, or I asked you rather was, well, is it true? I actually wanted to know what we were talking about and the details that were important. So maybe in that regard, it was finding, starting the truth rather. Mm, right. That up to this point in time, um, there had been a, an immense amount of uh, secrets and lies. Of course, you didn't know that. But now that whole hall of mirrors <laughs> is shattering and you're kind of just staring now at stark concrete walls and you're kind of feeling around in the dark aren't you you're you're kind of putting your hands on these these walls around you just trying to figure out what's real what's there um, to make sense of it and i think that's a great question you know what's true and that really is the heart and soul of that first question you asked me you know I, I think of the statement I'm making. And of course, you know, truth comes out in trickles. And I think as I look back on that moment, I was just as unprepared to speak the truth as you were to hear the truth. We're both just kind of learning in that moment. Um, and I think the the thing that's, you know, kind of coming out, oh, there's there's rumors. Oh, there's there's this. I don't really know how to talk about the truth just yet, you know. Um, and your question really cuts through, well, what's the truth? What's the truth? And I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, was there a part of you in that moment that, that was hopeful that I would look over and say, oh, well, God, it's false. Of course. I didn't even know if that was a possibility. I, I really feel under that question, I knew, mm. or I feared I knew. And so I was bracing myself. But when that verdict came out, when I heard the words out of your mouth, 
I must have been holding out hope that the answer was no, or I don't think that response would have come crashing down so hard. Mm. Right? Like it could have been, well, that made sense, or I saw that coming, or right? But it wasn't. I think that the hope behind it was, please, God, tell me it's not so. Mm. And when that wasn't, there was no place for the emotion to go, but, you know, come crashing down in that experience. Your comment about feeling in the dark, right? Uh, It makes me think about when dealing, right, with people who've gone through infidelity, they really use um, a trauma response type of model, right, that comes through that to kind of handle um, the situation. A lot of people, that makes sense when working with people who have gone through that. And the reason why you were talking about walking through the dark is because there's no up and there's no down. You can't find your bearings anymore. Just like someone who's gone through a traumatic event, it's like, I don't understand how the world works anymore. I thought it was safe. I thought that there was security. I thought I knew my identity. So that model kind of makes sense in this is that it was so shocking that the feeling around was, I don't know what this thing is anymore. And I guess I'm curious, like on the other side, did it feel traumatic to you? Did you have that walking through the dark moment on my side? I definitely felt that. But, you know, you were the person that shared these. And so what was that, you know, response from you? I definitely think it brought up my own um, mechanisms um, for defense and getting through a crisis. You know, I, I think looking backwards in my lifetime, I'm very equipped to handle a crisis. Sometimes I feel even more comfortable in the storm than out of it, which really stinks because, you know, if like you're more comfortable in the storm, you'll, you'll create storms to feel comfort. Um, and I certainly think that, you know, based upon so much of my own life circumstances and, and conditioning, um, there was kind of a, an eerie knowing what to do that came over me, um, that I felt like reality winnowed down all the options, all the possibilities that exist, you know, in waking life and day-to-day life had narrowed down to a small screen of focus. This was a crisis. And, you know, my own, I'll use that word, phrase, trauma response to it, um, was to get very granular. Like if I can just, if I can just say the next thing, uh, I lost any predictive ability in that moment. I didn't know what was three steps ahead. I just knew what I needed to do next. Um, and so certainly, you know, as you were asking questions and as it was all kind of tumbling out, Part of what was going on inside of me was a radical not knowing of what was next and a commitment to simply be in the here and now. Now that sounds glorious, but I do in fact think that is a bit of a a crisis response. 
It was also an appropriate crisis response. I think a lot of times one of the things that that floods people is, oh my God, what am I going to do next? And and uh, you know, she's telling me this, and and she's reacting in a quite large way. She's not really liking this news. She's going to leave me. I'm going to lose everything. I got to contact Bob, the divorce lawyer, next. And my buddy just lost everything in a divorce he went through. And um, oh my God, I'm going to be sleeping on the streets next week. And right, we we get very five steps ahead with a, a diverted angle. You know, it's like we're way, way out in, in left field suddenly. Um, the gift of that moment and, you know, perhaps for many reasons was simply showing up to that, that next space. And I kept kind of thinking that if I can just do this well, if I can just do this well, um, there can be some hope in that. Yeah. And I think that the, you know, that event happened in a car on the road and we didn't pull over. And so it put us in that present moment for the duration of a two hour or so trip. It slowed time down. So we really were in that present moment facing the thing. And that probably was very important in getting our bearings, you know. I'm surprised we didn't bail out of the car. You know, I'm sure there was moments that we both really wanted to. It's interesting how our family of origin stuff comes into play. Like you said, I I was kind of trained for this idea of figuring crises out. I knew how to do this. And there we were in one. I think one of the things that I was trained in is keeping stuff together, being flexible, problem solving. Um, And so some of my stuff came into play. I really think that that family of origin piece, like we had some training that said, let's keep this car moving forward until we can figure out what in the world this is. Yeah, we often think of trauma responses or coping mechanisms or or defense strategies as as negative things like, oh, well, that's just my programming or, oh, you know, I, I was conditioned to do that. But in some ways, I'm very grateful for some of those conditioned uh, outcomes in that moment. They are a part of the wound, and I think we'll get to that, but but they're they're also part of the healing of it also. And so I, I, I think that's an important thing to remember. And, and maybe I, I want to I ask something of you that this makes me think. In that moment, as you're maybe being flooded with thoughts and feelings and, and perhaps now questions that had never been there before, is there a, is there a voice in the back of your mind that's shaming yourself? How did I miss this? What the hell am I doing here? What's going on? Uh, How loud was the voice of shame at the epicenter of the event? The voice of shame, I think, was an ongoing battle that began in that moment. 
where it goes back to this conversation that we had. Did you ever think this would be your life or situation? And I think that there's this place of invincibility. That won't be me. That won't be our story. It happens to other people, but that's, that's not the story that I'm writing of my life. I mean, I was trained as a marriage and family therapist, helping people through this stuff, trained to see it, right? And so I think there's an element that it's out there outside of me so that it would happen to me, happen to me, that it was part of my story was deeply shaming. And I actually didn't share with hardly anyone at the beginning because of that sense of shame. What will people think? What do I think? Am I the kind of person that can be tossed to the side? Do I not have value? Why would I not be respected? So it came crashing down quickly. Right? Shame says there's something wrong with me. So if there was nothing wrong with me, this wouldn't happen. Mm. So obviously there's something wrong with me. And that's why this has happened. You know, even just hearing that and then thinking about sitting on the other side as I'm driving the car and, and thinking to myself, well, God, I, I've been driving this car for some time now and have driven it into the ditch. There was immediately shame for me also. I think it switched to guilt pretty quick, though. Here's what I mean. You know, if shame is a characterological trait, this is about me. This is my character. This is who I am. And I feel bad about who I am. Guilt is an equivalent emotion that says, this is about what I did. This is about what I did. This is about something that happened that I'm responsible for. And, you know, when I, when I examine character, I think character and action are really tied in a continuum so that guilt and shame can be really tied well also, and you can unwind them really well um, too. So here's how that works. My character is formed by habits that I perpetuate over time. My habits are formed by actions that are consistent in my life. My actions are created by choices that I make moment to moment to moment. In other words, my choices create my character over time. So the things I feel shame over having become, actually I can unwind down to the, the molecular choices that I made that I can feel guilty about. And so I can go, oh, I really did do this. <laughs> I really did royally fuck that up. That happened. I don't have to defend that. I don't have to get big and say, oh, it's all my fault, isn't it? I just want to hide because it reflects badly on who I am. I can look at that and go, no, that happened. I did that. And I did it again and again and again, and it became my character. Now, the great news is, I can also get out of that through making different choices. And so when I distill it down to that single moment, part of me had to be thinking, I've got to to imagine if I can just make a different choice. Can I choose differently in this space? Can I make a different action with my life? Because if I can, then I can create new character 
And for me, the quintessential new character I wanted to create was one of deep authenticity. And so the thought going through my mind was, can I show up to this moment well? And what I meant by that was, can I show up with authenticity? So in some ways, that guilt was prompting me to create a new character and to make new choices. That must have taken a lot of guts to keep showing up in authentic ways, having right that, that connection that you're making of choices to character. That was something that was pretty natural at that point. You'd been doing it for so long that it probably was just habit. So to be so intentional to unravel it and to show up authentically, that seems like heavy, heavy lifting. The thing that we do over and over becomes our character. I really appreciate how you explain that because I had my own set of choices. One of the things that I participated in and probably didn't know is I really wanted to keep life together. And so for me, not bringing up hard things, not bringing up discomfort, not addressing my feelings and my thoughts because I wanted to keep the ship moving forward. And by not doing that, by not stepping into I became a very passive participant in those dialogues. So my character looked very different too at that time. I had to step in. That's taken quite a bit of time for me to do because I didn't want to hurt. I wanted to avoid pain. And what's interesting is you can't avoid it. It caused a lot of pain. I made some assumptions just a minute ago about what that was like for you to be authentic, to choose that. How difficult was that from choice to character and all the in-between to be authentic? Because you had built a lot on secrets. I didn't know that I wasn't part of. And there you are asking yourself, can I show up authentically? Well, I think it was far more difficult than I knew then. And perhaps even today, it's even more difficult you know, because the more you know, the more you're responsible for. And of course, the more you hold that magnifying glass to your life, you realize, oh my God, you know, this isn't just one tunnel underground. This is like thousands of tunnels, a tunnel under a tunnel under a tunnel. And of course, you know, part of what, what we're unfolding here is this interesting web that began to unravel in front of our eyes. But in that moment, it seemed pretty clear. I can talk about this affair. I can talk about what happened then and there with this person and see where it goes. Now, of course, that was just me dipping my feet into those waters. And that was you feeling flooded by what was really a trickle in some ways that would come out. Yeah, what's coming to my mind is the true crime actual syndicate, right? Where they look like a normal couple, right? You know, he's a therapist and she's, you know, this stay-at-home mom and part-time, you know, like this, what everyone else sees and what you kind of believe, but you know is probably not the truth. 
and we can't believe this happened to them. Can you imagine, right? Like there was a look of it and a feel of it, but those tunnels, the avoidance that I had and fear of pain and I guess hearing authenticity, could I be okay? Could we all be okay? And those experiences that you were having. So outwardly, it had a structure, but the infrastructure was not for plain viewing. Mm, Yeah. There's a scene in Atlas Shrugged, the very beginning of the book, where there's a a oak tree that uh, a well-to-do family had situated on their property for many generations, a beautiful, large oak tree. And one day a storm comes and lightning strikes the oak tree and it's hollow. And I think that that's the moment we're talking about. Lightning has struck, the oak tree split open, and it's hollow. And so that's where we are in the story. The car is driving, the body hit the floor. Checking in to a hotel at the beach. I'm not exactly sure where we stayed, what our plan was. I really don't think that we had reservations anywhere. Roughed up from our ride and our conversation and the emotion. I remember you asking me, are you hungry? We tried to do things that were normal. Can you imagine trying to be somewhat normal, one foot in front of the other, checking into a hotel room, headed down for a walk on the beach? And I only remember the beach, standing there, fielding what felt like a thousand questions. Did you love her? Was it once? Was it a dozen times? Did you want more? Questions kept coming, pounding like rain, hoping that I could say one honest sentence. I was struggling to get there, just trying to show up to that next moment well. And I was trying to figure out what questions to ask. What did I need to know so I could keep standing next to you, knowing if we were going to take steps together? I tried to figure out the next thing to say or what I needed to know. It was a really out-of-body experience. I was there. The shape of me was there. The outline of me was there. But this was a life I was unfamiliar with. This was a story that I didn't know. Graciously, the mind slips into the Alzheimer's of the present. The future fades. The past becomes darkness. And so the beach and the questions on the beach suddenly evaporates to a dark bedroom and I'm on the couch and you're on the bed and all I can hear is you crying through the night from some primal place. I didn't even know if we should be in the same room. You just don't know what to do. And there was a wall of separation. I wanted to be cruel because I was hurt so bad. I wanted you to feel bad too. What do you do when the person that you love is also the person that hurt you? So I remember I called out your name. It's maybe two in the morning and I hear my name and I, I can't really fathom why that wall which wasn't just a wall that had emerged 
then, but more like a curtain had fallen and the wall that had always been there was suddenly clear. And I say, yeah. And I ask you to come beside the bed. At that point, there were not very many nights that we had not been together since we were married. We were in unfamiliar territory. And I walked over to the bed and I stood there, not wanting to do anything more than had been asked of me. You ask me, will you get in the bed? Will you just lie beside me right here? The injustice is life we think should be right or wrong, I guess. The truth is, it never is one or the other. But I just knew I needed that comfort. I knew there was a split between the pain that was caused and the comfort that I was desiring in that moment. So I asked you, you were hesitant, and so was I, leaning into one another. I'm still crying, but you are holding me. That was maybe the first time I ever held you. First time in a long time. And that invisible wall was gone. And there's just the two of us lying there in the night. When I think about you and I in that place, in that time, we didn't know what we were doing. There's no handbook on the spot. Read chapter five, you know, paragraph two. This is what you should do in this situation. And there's no black and white thinking about, should we be in the same hotel room? Should we get food? Should we act normal? You don't know. So you just put one foot in front of the other. Right. You know, I think uh, there's such a proliferation of, you know, common wisdom or common sense thinking when it comes to this or that. And there's a world of of shoulds and right and wrong, black and white. And you all think that, you know, when you come to the situation, here's what you will do. It's so much more messy than that. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine being uh, in your shoes. You know, you're receiving this massive revelation that calls into question everything you had known up to that point. Can you imagine having to follow a rule book? Did that enter your mind? I mean, did you have the shoulds? I mean, was that was that there for you at all? I think that you're just so overloaded. I I was overloaded. Like you want to scream, you want to shout, you're angry as hell. You're sad. You want that person, you hate that person in the moment. You are bombarded, right, with so many different experiences. I wanted to run, right? You know, I saw a mountain on the coastal range. I wanted to go and climb it and scream at the top and beat my body, right? Like I, it was like, there's no, there's no way to almost even communicate Mm -hmm. those places. So, oh, sure. A manual at that point would have been a joke. You know, it really occurs to me when I listen to that, that moment, when I hear this transpire, we're really at an epicenter. You know, it's like ground zero, right? The the towers have fallen. And here we are, the the rubble of everything, everything that's come before. But you really can't rebuild until there's ruin. And you know, so much of what had been built up to that point, I think we we heard that that phrasing. It was a wall. 
a wall between you and I and, and every lie and every uh, deceit and every omission and every uh, choosing not to reveal our thoughts or our feelings or to pull back or to withhold. All of it was a construction job preventing us from seeing one another. I mean, how many times had we held one another? But the wall that had been built prevented us from actually coming in contact. Yeah, we were really good at doing a quick build, right? At the beginning of our relationship, um, we fit well and we got along and we had the same visions and we had the gifts that we had in life. They just seemed to really jive and we saw what we wanted to see and we built uh, a life and a family really quickly. Now you're bringing up some interesting questions. Because I, I think that when we look at the scene of a crime like this, one of the questions I'm going to is, how the hell do we get here? Because nobody starts here. Nobody starts with a construction job of a giant great wall between you, right? We all start in that beautiful place of till death do us part. And this person is never going to hurt me. And they're the exception to all the rules. And we're the ones who are going to make it. That's where everybody starts. Nobody imagines that they're the scene of the crime, right? So how the hell do we get here? That's, that's really what's on my mind. I imagine when we jumped in to that place, you want to see what you want to see. You believe in the places that you're going. And for me, I wanted to problem solve. I wanted to make things work right. I didn't want to push in too much that I couldn't handle at that moment. So I was doing a quick build myself. A lot of responsibility came really fast in our relationship. And I didn't want to rock the boat. I think um, looking at this and hearing it now, I'm so struck with how turbulent that moment feels. But everything, everything that would come came out of that moment. So, so the turbulence, the, the storm, it produced everything that enables us to be having this conversation now. So that, that holding moment was truly the beginning of everything else. But I think before we can get there, before we can talk about rebuilding or quick building or any of that, I actually think We've got to know how we got here and who the suspects are in setting us up for this murder. Like, who killed the marriage? Because this is clearly a case of an inside job and some things that had been <laughs> lingering for quite a while bringing us to this spot. Yeah? Absolutely. I imagined that I would have been pointing my finger right at you. <laughs> There's a suspect. Blame him. Right. It's like one of those uh, like Agatha Christie novels where the detective's going around the room. And he's like, it was you, wasn't it? And, <laughs> and then they're like, no, they have an alibi. It's the next one. And then, you know, it becomes like a Scooby-Doo thing and they pull off the mask. It was really Mr. Jensen the whole time. Yeah. And what you find out 
is it's a lot deeper and there's a lot of infrastructure that's happening. Lots of twists and turns that were unexpected. What we need to do is actually dive a little deeper. I'd like to go backwards all the way back to where it began, where relationships begin, where people come in contact with one another for the first time. I want to know what shaped our two prime suspects in this murder, you and me. So why don't we look at family of origin next? The things that shaped us, that bring us to these places. That sounds like a good place to start. All right. Well, thanks. That was really wonderful. And uh, I can't wait to uh, catch this next time with you all. Help us uncover the mystery. Thank you for listening to this episode of Love Like Hell. We appreciate your support so much. Listen, would you do us a small favor? If you love the show, will you leave a fabulous five-star review? And don't forget to share this with all your friends. Okay. Well, until next week, I'm Rainier. And I'm Christy. Live like mad and love, love like, like hell. Love like hell. That, that was my signature. Uh. Line. <laughs>